Well, happy Resurrection Sunday. He is risen. Such good news. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Let's reflect on our risen Lord today as we look at 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. What do all the following people have in common? Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, Darwin, Buddha, Mahatma Gandhi, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, Napoleon, Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden, Caesar, Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great, Nero, Adolf Hitler, Elvis, John Lennon, Tom Petty, Michael Jackson, Robin Williams, Kobe Bryant, and Dale Earnhardt. What do all of them have in common? They've all died. All of them have tasted the sting of death. Death is like that inescapable enemy that all must face, no matter what level of prestige or power or money you possess. Money can't rescue you from death, and your own deeds can't even rescue you from death. However, there is one who has conquered it. There is one person who is distinct from all these names that I listed. And unlike any famous person in history, and unlike any other world religion teachers, Jesus is alive. This is the distinguishing factor of Christianity. Our Lord is risen. The one who saves us is risen. He is alive and he will never die again. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, we get a brief snapshot of what the gospel is. And right alongside it mentioning the importance of the cross, that Jesus died for our sins, we see that the resurrection is listed there as well as of greatest importance. We must remember that we preach a risen Lord. That the resurrection gets just as much significance, just as much highlight in our gospel proclamation as the crucifixion of Christ. These two verses, you could say, verses 3 and 4, are the heart of the gospel. It's a basic summary of what the gospel is. If someone was to ask you, what is the gospel? Do you know what you would say? Well, these two verses give us a nice little summary. That Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised. These two verses provide actual, actually two non-negotiables of the gospel. Non-negotiables. We see Jesus' vicarious death, and we see Jesus' victorious resurrection. And all of it points to say that salvation depends upon the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So let's read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 5. The Apostle Paul's writing here to the church of Corinth, and he says in verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, 
and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and he has had much to say with them up to this point. He's discussed issues of divisions, unity. He has described what love, true love, is like, biblical love. He's helped them understand spiritual gifts and orderly worship, and on and on it goes. And as we get to chapter 15, he narrows down onto the topic of the resurrection. This is one of Paul's most lengthy discussions on a theological topic. He devotes the chapter to the discussion of the resurrection. And it appears that there had been some doubts among the church in Corinth, doubts about the resurrection, and there had been some bad teaching concerning it. But not just doubts about Christ's own resurrection, but also wondering, will anyone else rise from the grave? And so Paul addresses it. But he begins the chapter by reminding them of the gospel and its results. Begins by urging them, do not forget the gospel. Do not forget the gospel that I personally preach to you. Paul had spent 18 months in Corinth living with them, proclaiming the word of God to them. And supposedly they had believed this good news, this good message in its entirety. Supposedly they had believed it and they had believed that salvation comes by the work of God and they are sustained by God. But Paul reminds them that the genuineness of their belief in the gospel would demonstrate itself in their perseverance in the gospel. If they were to begin rejecting any part of it, say the resurrection, then they show they never really understood it in the first place. And so the conclusion of their belief would be that it was in vain. Serving no purpose. It would be mere shallow intellectual acknowledgement that never produced lasting fruit. And so at verse 3 he begins reminding them that he delivered to them this news of greatest importance. He was diligent to pass on this message, this gospel. He says it's of first importance. Meaning it's the most important thing. It is the priority. The most vital message that you need to know. The most important message you need to hear in your life that I need to hear is the good news of Jesus Christ. Everything after that falls short in comparison. Redemption comes no other way. But this news he passed on was no... Ordinary news. He had received it himself. Now, he didn't receive it in an ordinary man-made way. Galatians 1.12, he reminds us, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a reminder of Paul's encounter and conversion on the road to Damascus to actually persecute the church. He was confronted with the risen Christ, the ascended Christ even, and He was changed. He was the recipient of the grace of God himself. He was the recipient of the gospel in both content, what it is, and in experience. He himself was rescued. 
And as you read the New Testament, you see Paul was faithful to share that news. He was a faithful messenger. But what is this gospel message he received and pass on? What is it? Well, that's what we see next. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The first non-negotiable, you could say, of the gospel. The first thing we do not set aside, water down, change, is Jesus' vicarious death. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now, he is referring to Jesus here, but I find it fascinating. He doesn't say Jesus died for our sins. Yes, Jesus did, but he uses the title Christ in describing him. And when that is used in the New Testament, it is referring to the Messiah, the anointed one that was talked about and predicted from the Old Testament. And the coming Messiah foretold in the Old Testament would suffer and die for his people in order to deliver them from impending doom, impending judgment on the last day. He would provide atonement by his vicarious death. Now you might be thinking, what in the world does vicarious mean? That's not in our everyday vocabulary. It'll just roll it off in my tongue or in my text messages. When we call it his vicarious death, we mean that's in the place of others for the benefit of others. It's similar to the idea of substitution. In the place of others for the benefit of others. First Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Every person is in desperate need for this work of Jesus. Since the fall recorded in Genesis 3, mankind has been plagued with sin. Mankind is born with the nature of sinfulness because of Adam's sin in the garden, Moral and spiritual corruption affects all areas of our lives. And every person is born with the nature of depravity. It renders us incapable of delivering ourselves from such a perilous state without the intervention of divine grace. Everyone is born sinful. It's interesting in a 2020 study from Ligonier Ministries called The State of Theology... The survey found that 46% of professing evangelicals believe that most people are good by nature. 46%. That's almost half of all those who profess to believe the gospel actually think you're born good. I would think we'd agree that that is sad. And not only is it sad, it's unbiblical. Have we forgotten how bad sin really is? Sin is anything that does not conform in action, thought, word, desire, or nature to the law of God, to the will of God, to the character of God. It is contrary to the holy nature of God. Romans 3 makes it clear that no one is naturally righteous, no one understands, no one seeks for God, and no one does good. Not even one. 
We have lied, we have stolen, we have committed murder and adultery, at least in our hearts. We've been envious towards others. We have not loved God as we should with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbor as we should. We have violated God's commands. And the Bible is clear that just one of those violations makes you guilty of breaking them all. That is how serious sin is. Do you see that you have sinned? Do you hate your sin? Or do you secretly love it? See, the consequence of sin is death and eternal hell under the righteous wrath of God. Everyone desperately needs salvation from that. There is not a single person other than Jesus. There's not a single person who is free from the corruption and guilt of sin. And the only hope for the lost person is found in Jesus Christ. And so he died for our sins. We were in desperate need of that, and he did that. But Paul reminds us that this is in accordance with the Scriptures. The Scriptures show us that God had a plan to deal with sin all along. As we look at the Old Testament, we see this plan moving forward one step at a time. From the fall And the promise that was given from that to the sacrificial system to the promise in the Old Testament of a coming servant who would suffer and redeem his people. God orchestrated all that was necessary to redeem his people, to rescue fallen man. God planned that the Messiah would be the source of redemption. So what are some scriptures that point to this? Well, just a few We see the first mention of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. After the fall, when Adam and Eve had disobeyed God and eaten from the fruit they were not supposed to, God comes and pronounces the cursing for it. And in talking to the serpent, the evil one, he says this in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. All the way from the first sin, we see the promise of a seed of the woman who would be the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that he would suffer from the bite of the evil one, from the bite of the consequences of sin. Not his own sin, though. But in doing so, he would deliver the fatal blow to the evil one. That he would crush the head of the evil one through his work. Let you fast forward to Isaiah 53, which we looked at briefly on Friday. And you see in verses 4 through 6, this language of a substitute, of this great servant, this Messiah, who would suffer for his people so that they would be healed Isaiah 53, beginning of verse 4, says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
you go to verse 10, we see that his soul would make an offering for guilt, that he will bear the sins of many. He shall bear their iniquities. And so in Isaiah 53, we see the most detailed explanation in the Old Testament of the Messiah who would suffer in the place for others. All this mention about offering for guilt and bearing one's iniquities, bearing sin, is Old Testament language related to the sacrificial system. Under the Mosaic law, animals were prescribed as sacrifices to cover for sin, but they were unending. It was always happening, showing that it wasn't sufficient. The perfect sacrifice, the sufficient sacrifice, would be one that never had to be offered a second time. And so we know that that perfect, sufficient sacrifice is Christ's sacrifice. He only had to offer it once. And it wasn't for himself. Jesus was sinless. Jesus is sinless. And so his payment of his life, his laying down his life to endure the wrath of God was for the sake of others. And his death is perfectly sufficient to God. So much so that Isaiah 53.11 says that he makes many to be accounted righteous. He does it. He makes them accounted righteous. You fast forward a little further into the prophets and you get to Zechariah 12.10. Where the prophet says, and I will pour out, this is God speaking, the Lord, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, that shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. The Lord who would save them would first be pierced by them. The Messiah would be rejected, pierced, and killed by the people. But this verse also is saying that one day they will look on him in repentance. They will see the wrongdoing that they've done and repent of their evil ways. These are just little glimpses throughout the Old Testament of the pointing towards Christ dying for our sins. And the whole of Scripture points to this divine drama being played out. They consistently show from the beginning of time that all of history has been racing towards the crucifixion of Christ. And in fulfillment of what God said in His Word, because He is faithful to His Word, Jesus gave up His life on the cross so that we would be forgiven of all, not some, all of our transgressions. And God graciously did this. God graciously did not leave mankind with no hope. Just to perish away in their sins. God sent forth the Son out of love to redeem us. Salvation is a gift by God's grace that is received by faith. It is not earned by good works. So Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures And then it says, and he was buried. Interesting that Paul slips that in there. He was buried. But it's important that it's there. In the burial of Jesus, we get the verification that he really did die. He really did die. When they lay, when he died, and they took him off the cross, 
Joseph of Arimathea, who was known as a, a rich man, which is interesting in Isaiah 53, said he would be buried with the rich man. Put him in his, Joseph of Arimathea, put him in his own tomb. They rolled the stone over the tomb and they sealed it. And we know that the Pharisees were so concerned that the disciples would come and steal the body to further the story that Jesus did rise from the dead, that they had the Romans stationed guards outside the tomb. Roman soldiers. So it is without a doubt that he really did die. Now, some deny that Jesus actually died. They think after he was beaten and bruised and his flesh was torn and he had a crown of thorns put on his head and beaten with that crown of thorns on, then he carried his cross up to the hill and then was crucified on that hill on a cross and was pierced in his side, that after all that, he just fainted, passed out, And then later, he woke up in the tomb, recovered, and just walked away. That's ridiculous. Listen, I stubbed my toe on the bed frame, and it's the end of the world. There's no way he would have endured such agony and torture and just got up and walked away. Not without dying first. If Jesus didn't fully die, if he really didn't die, like some say, then your sins aren't forgiven. The payment wasn't completed in full. But Jesus' vicarious death on the cross is non-negotiable. He did die for our sins. And if you modify it or deny that, then you lose the gospel. So that's the first negotiable, non-negotiable. The second non-negotiable is Jesus' victorious resurrection. That he did rise from the dead. We do not negotiate with that. Because without the resurrection, the gospel is incomplete. And the Bible has lied to us. But it has not lied to us. It is the truth. It is the word of God. And the gospel is complete because not only did Christ die, he rose again. We know that after he, after on the third day of being in the tomb, and some women went to the tomb to bring stuff for his body, they found that the tomb, the stone in front of the tomb was rolled away and the tomb was empty. The one who had died and was buried was also raised. And it was a bodily resurrection. His body was raised too. It wasn't just a spirit that was raised. It was all of Jesus. And the the resurrection of Jesus is a miraculous event. It's a significant event. And we must accept it as true or else we do not have biblical Christianity. Jesus' burial emphasizes his real death and the empty tomb emphasizes the resurrection of Christ. As I said, when he was buried, the tomb was sealed and guarded with Roman soldiers, making it almost impossible to be robbed. And so it is outrageous to think that the disciples overpowered trained Roman guards and said it was a supernatural resurrection. The linen wrappings were left where his body was, but the face cloth was separately folded. And this all happened in accordance with the scriptures, just like his death. And so as you take time to look through the Old Testament, you find shades or Faint pictures pointing forward that there would be a resurrection of the Messiah. In Psalm 16, 9 through 11, it says, this is David's 
cry, his, his prayer. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is cited in Acts chapter 2, verses 23-28. And what it's pointing to here is that the greater David, David himself died and was buried. So he went to the tomb. But the greater David is greater than death. The greater David wouldn't be left in the grave, wouldn't see corruption of his body. God had promised and planned that Jesus would rise from the grave because his power is greater than the grave. Death is defeated by Jesus. So we see that in the the Psalms. We go back to our beloved chapter 53 of Isaiah. Even in there, there are allusions to the idea of the resurrection. In Isaiah 53, 10 through 12, we're talking about the triumphing servant. That his offering to the Lord was sufficient and powerful. And in verse 10, it makes the note, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. So after he would make an offering for guilt for sin, he would then see his offspring. So if if the servant is going to see those whom he has rescued and those whom he's made part of his family, then he must be alive. Verse 12 would go on to say that he makes intercession for transgressors. Well, he began, he interceded for us at the cross by giving his life for us, but he continues to make intercession for transgressors. The Messiah must be alive if he is now forever going to intercede for his people. Christ is triumphed over death because his work was acceptable to God. And God was faithful to fulfill what he said he would do. And that includes the lifting up and the exalting exalting of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Which, if you remember, we saw on Friday in Isaiah 52, 13. Now, back to verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 15. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. It's interesting that the, the term raised being used here is what we would say is in the perfect tense. So we're going to get a little grammar here. The perfect tense. It's a perfect passive. We'll work backwards here. Passive meaning it was done to him. So we know that God raised him in validation, in acceptance of all that he did. But it's a perfect tense, meaning that a current, it's an event that created a current state, a current condition with no indication of change, and it has brought major implications It's interesting that he doesn't use the perfect tense to describe Jesus' death or his burial, but he uses it to describe Jesus rising from the dead. That the resurrection brings major effects. This condition that we're now in going forward, all these spiritual blessings we receive, the eternal life we receive, the justification is coming to us because of the effects that the resurrection has created. 
The resurrection is the validation that all Jesus said about himself was true. All that he did was right. It testified to the legitimacy of his ministry, both his preaching ministry, but also his saving work. We see Jesus even prepare us to understand that when in John chapter 2, after he cleanses the temple the first time, the Jews ask him for a sign. They say, what gives you the right, the authority to do what you just did? Interestingly, Jesus responds as this being the sign. He says to destroy this temple and in three days I'll rise it up. I will raise it up. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He wasn't talking. It tells us it wasn't. he was not talking about the physical temple, the building. He was talking about his own body. So the resurrection, even Jesus prepared us to think, to understand that the resurrection is the sign that brings validity to all that he has said and all that he has done. And so therefore, knowing it is true, knowing it has happened, we are accountable for what we know that he said and he did. Well, the death of Christ paid for sin and appeased God's wrath. Jesus being raised secures our new life. Even in Romans 4, Paul is discussing Abraham being counted as righteous through faith. And he says this, It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our our trespasses and raised for our justification. We tend to think about justification as just being about what happens at the cross. But here Paul reminds us, no, it's not just about what happens at the cross. It is also directly connected to a living Christ. For God to truly declare us righteous with the righteousness of Christ, then there there must be, there must be the cross and the resurrection. Two sides of the same coin. Jesus must die as our substitute in our place and he must be raised again to new life. And from the moment Jesus arose into the rest of eternity, God's kingdom and his redemptive plans hinge on Christ being risen. It brings us the confident expectation that God will accomplish the work he began in us. And we will enjoy the eternal inheritance we have waiting for us. Listen to 1 Peter 1, 3-5, and listen for the significance of the resurrection. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our new birth being born again, we call that regeneration, God giving us life, it comes through the resurrection of Christ. And if life comes through Christ, then Christ must be alive. In fact, we would see this in Ephesians 2 as well. In Ephesians 2, 1, Paul reminds us we're dead in our sins and our trespasses. But in verse 5, he says that God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Well, if we're made alive together with Christ, if we're united with Christ, and we're guaranteed life, then Christ must be alive. 
And so our security is found in our union with the risen, living Christ. So because Jesus is alive, your redemption is secure. Because he is alive, you are free from the bondage of sin. Because he is alive, he will never forsake you. Because he is alive, he will return. He will return for us. He will return to rule. Because he's alive, God will make all things new, including the heavens and the earth. Because he is alive, all will stand before him in judgment. Because he's alive, we know that the fallen world and the evil one will not win. Because the resurrection is the foretaste of his final coming victory. And the resurrection brings the expectation that God will accomplish his future plan of Jesus reigning over all the earth. That is good news. But there are some who reject this. And the Apostle Paul in chapter 15 helps us know how to respond to it. Let's play the what if game. What if the resurrection was a hoax and was all made up? It's just a myth. Well, here's what Paul says. One, the preaching of the gospel would be meaningless and a waste of time. Your faith in Jesus would be pointless and of no value. He says in 1 Corinthians fifteen fourteen, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Okay, what else? Well, preachers of the resurrection would be lying to you. You see that in verse 15. If it's all made up, then you would not and cannot be saved. You would still be stuck in your sins. Verse 17 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. What else? Verse 18, we see that those who have died believing in the resurrection still went to hell. And lastly, if it's all made up, then Christians are to be pitied as the most miserable and foolish of people. For he says in verse 19, If if in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are of all people most pitied. But it's not a hoax. It's not just a myth. It is a fact. And belief in the resurrection of Christ is necessary for salvation. It is true. It is interesting in verse 5 that he reminds us that he wasn't just raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures... But he appeared. He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. He appeared to many after his resurrection. Some being 500 brothers at one time. And he wasn't just a ghost. People touched him. He ate with them. He was really there. He still maintained his human form. It was a bodily resurrection. So why does he say that he appeared? Well, it brings verification to the resurrection. Just as his burial verifies his death for our sins, so his appearing verifies that he is risen. And the disciples themselves were radically transformed men from before to after the resurrection. You think about Peter himself, the chief apostle there, went from denying Jesus... In public, to boldly proclaiming the truth about Jesus to the point of death and persecution. 
And so the resurrection was so significant that the disciples, when they would gather, the church would meet, began gathering on the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose. And that's why we still gather on Sundays to this day. It is fascinating that as Paul discusses and draws to the end of chapter 15, that there's this mention, this theme of the victory that comes through Jesus being risen. He would say in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of sin is death and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is not the final word. For those who are trusting in Christ, one day you will stand in the presence of the Lamb who conquered sin and death for you. You will get to put away this body that is falling apart and put on an imperishable, eternal body made for glory. You will depart from the company of sin and misery and pain and you will get to enjoy life with your Lord because He triumphed over the grave. The death of Jesus for our sins and the resurrection of Jesus are non-negotiables. We cannot let the world convince us that we are too intolerant or too unloving because we hold tightly to these truths. So can you now answer the question, what is the gospel? These two verses help us. Christ died for our sins, was buried, and he was raised. One whole act of the gospel. Salvation depends upon the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if you have not trusted in Jesus, you need to do so today. Listen, this is the beauty and the good news of the Bible, the willingness of God to save you. He says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. Turn from your sins and trust in Christ today. My fellow Christian, let's be a faithful messenger as the Apostle Paul was a faithful messenger with what he had received. Let's tell others of the good news of the death and resurrection of Christ because we know it's the only way they can be saved. Let's live like one who knows that our Lord Jesus is alive. Let's live like those who truly believe without a doubt that we'll be with the Lord after this life. Let's live as those who guide all our actions and all our thoughts and all our words through knowing that Jesus is alive and Jesus is returning. Let's rejoice in the good news that our Lord is risen and He is alive today. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news that this is. We thank you that though we are sinners and our sins condemn us 
And we deserve nothing good. We should be in hell now at this moment. But we thank you for the great mercy that you have shown us by not casting us into hell right away when we first ever sinned. But you have shown such amazing love towards us that you sent your son to be our substitute, to be the one that took our sins, to be the one that was willing to be beaten and bruised and killed so that our record of debt would be washed away, that our guilt would be washed away. But we know that he didn't just stay dead. You were so thorough in your work that you raised him from the dead. That we don't worship a dead God, but a living one. Father, we look forward to the day that Christ returns. And we must wait patiently until then. So help us as we face every circumstance or moment that comes our way to remember that no matter what happens, our Savior lives to ever intercede for us. And our Savior Savior will return to make right all that is wrong. May our hearts be filled with joy as we consider the fullness of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.